We have seen as we've studied this book that it truly is the Song of Songs. It tells us about the love that Jesus has for his church and the love that his church has for him. And there's no greater theme that a song could be about, no sweeter topic than this Song of Songs. We've had three sermons so far, besides our uh, introduction uh, with the psalm focus on Psalm 45, we've had three sermons actually on the Song of Solomon. In the first sermon, we looked at the fact that this is the Song of Songs. We looked at the first verse. The Holy Spirit tells us so. We looked at the support for the interpretation that this song is about the relationship of Christ and His bride in the church, noting that the name Solomon means Prince of Peace, and that the name Shulamite is the feminine version of that that means Princess of Peace. So it shows us that this is an allegory that's going on here. We saw further at how she is one bride, yet made up of many members. And so if this was a song about an ordinary kind of a relationship, it would be kind of weird to have where she's encouraging her friends to come and enjoy her husband's love with her. That's not, uh, it's not good. <laughs> but uh, when, when we see that it is um, a situation where it's the church, then we recognize the church is one bride, yet made up of many different members. And we looked at a number of other things, even the very fact that the Holy Spirit calls it the Song of Songs. And for it to be dubbed that, it's not talking about an ordinary human relationship, as great as that might be. Marriage is a wonderful thing, but it is not the superlative thing. The superlative thing is our relationship with the Lord. And so we need to uh, recognize the Holy Spirit himself has given it that title in the first verse. In the second sermon, we saw the bride yearning for Christ's kisses, that is, for the clear expressions of his love. And we noted that a kiss is a way of saying, I love you. Christ kisses us whenever his spirit causes us to receive the word of God that testifies of his love. We looked at John 14, where Jesus promised that after he went away, that he and the Father would come to his disciples and that they would manifest their love to them. That would be the, what we're talking about, are the kisses of bringing things to them to, show, to say, I love you. And how does he do that? Well, by sending the Holy Spirit, he says. So the way he kisses us is by bringing the Word and Spirit together. We talked about how those can't be separated. If we have only the Word, we've just got doctrine, but we don't have a sense of understanding, a, a, a receiving of that love that is given to us. And if we only have the Spirit, then we're in danger of mysticism, where it's not we really don't have the Spirit in that case, but where we wander off into our own imaginations about His love and found his love on the wrong foundation, on the wrong basis. So we want to have both word and spirit together. Then in the second sermon, oh, oh, in that second sermon, we also saw that the bride had already experienced his kisses. She went on to speak about how wonderful it was to be kissed by him, to, re, to have his love. She wasn't just looking for it then as someone that was not yet converted. 
She spoke about how his name is like ointment poured forth, filling the room with fragrance, so that when he comes around and she sees his character, it it just permeates everything. All that he is, the richness of who he is, it fills it with with a delicious odor, so to speak, with a fragrance. She pointed out that the virgins love him because of his excellent character and this effulgence of his his good ointments, that they all delight in him. And so there again, you see, you have these virgins. They make up the true bride. We're told in Revelation about the virgins and how they are the ones who are not defiled with harlots, but they're the ones who are devoted to him. And that's why they see his great love. If you are uh, if, if you've got idols, then you don't see his love because you're giving, you, you've got this relationship with idols and it blinds you to see all that Christ is. So the virgins are the ones who are the true bride of Christ that don't go after harlots. The bride now, of course, is made up of people in, in the outward, visible way, people that are professing Christians that some are not actually true believers. But uh, those who are the virgins are the ones who truly love him. In last week's sermon, we looked at verse 4, and it was one very packed verse, wasn't it? We didn't go beyond that one verse. First was her request, draw me away. Then the result of his drawing her, we will run after you. So you see, whenever the bride is drawn, then all the members run after Christ. And where do they end up? They end up in his chambers. And we saw that as a picture of the Holy of Holies, the intimate place where we come and we learn of God's character. We learn of his character in Christ crucified as he's revealed in the Holy of Holies. We see, the, um, we, we see his holiness. We see his justice that uh, would require such a sacrifice for our acceptance. We see his love and mercy that he would provide and give himself to be such a sacrifice. So we come into his presence in that way with a, with a great delight. So he, we say, draw me away. And then we run after him when he does draw us because his drawing is very powerful and effective in us. And then we come right into the place of greatest intimacy with him at the Holy of Holies. And, and then once that is done, then she spoke of her and the other members of the bride and said, we will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love better than wine. We saw that his love makes us happier than any of the best things of this world, than the best wine or things that can make us happy in this world. We talked about how important it is as well to maintain our happiness in him. Then she said how right it was for them to love him. Today, we're going to cover a lot more ground from verses 5 to verse 11. So uh, I'll read these verses to you now. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 5. I am dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards. But my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, O you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon. For why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, O fairest among women, follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tents. 
I have compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with chains of gold. We will make you ornaments of gold with studs of silver. Praise the Lord for his gracious word to us. May he bless now the preaching of his holy word. Verses 5 and 6, the bride speaks about her mixed condition. She begins verse 5, I am dark, but lovely. She is showing that she is a mixture of good and bad, of sin and grace. She illustrates it with the tents of Kedar and the curtains of Solomon. Now, Kedar was the second son of Ishmael. He was, the Kedar was a nomadic tribe southeast of Damascus, known for their tents that were made of black goat's hair. These were very, um, really kind of dismal looking on the edge of the desert. You would have these black tents that were set up, and they were, they were recognized for those who, who had these. They were, they were kind of low tents. They were, they were not particularly attractive at all. But then that's compared, you see, with the curtains of Solomon, which were rich hangings in his court, beautiful tapestry and embroidered material that had been made in all of Solomon's wisdom designing such things. So this is a huge contrast that is set up here between that which is dark and that which is lovely. This is the response that we all have a sense of this, this darkness and loveliness is a sense that we all have when we come near to Christ. When we're brought into his chambers as she had been, we have this sense of our unworthiness, that we're undone, that we're unclean, that there's much in us that's not right. But at the same time, we have a sense of loveliness, that he has changed us and that we're not what we were and that we, we desire to be with him. The more we learn of him, the more we see of our sin. And yet at the same time, the more we learn of him, the more we see of his grace changing and transforming us, working in our lives. It's a marvelous mixture here. Do you, not, do you know this mixture in, your, in yourself? Is it, something that you, is it not something that you saw when you first came to Christ out of the world? You see that you are, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, a new creation in Christ. Everything is new. Everything is changed. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You realize that you who used to have no interest in the Lord now are wholly devoted to him as your Lord and master. You have put off the old man and you've put on the new man that's renewed in the image of him who created us. You love him and you want to please him. Your heart of stone has been replaced with a heart of flesh that responds favorably to him, warmly to him. But you're also quite mindful at the same time of that remaining corruption when you first came to Christ, you fell under conviction of your sin. You, you, you saw that you were ruined and that you were undone. But now after coming and being made into a new creation with Him, you still see remaining sin in you. You see your half-hearted devotion to the Lord. You see the selfishness and the coldness that you have toward your brothers and sisters. You see how indifferent you are to them and to the things of the Lord. You see your lust for other things, your wavering commitment, how you're often drawn away. You see the idols to which your heart is too often attached. Though you have been turned to Christ and turned from your sin, 
You see sin even more than you ever saw it before. Like Paul says, like what we read in Romans 7, 18, you say, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. In other words, I want to do the right thing. But how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do or that I want to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So when he says it's no longer I that does it, he doesn't mean that he's not the one that sins, but he means that I have been fundamentally changed so that my desire is to go out toward God, and yet I find this, this sin that remains in me. I am dark, but lovely. That's the testimony of a believer. Even this present time of difficulty that we're in with all the things going on with the, the virus and all that's related to it, idols come out of us. We see darkness. We see blackness, things that are not what they, what they should be. You see that it is only by the working of His grace that there is any fruit in you. And it brings that out more and more in you. Now, I, I mentioned too that um, for even, even for those that grow up in the church and who have known Christ from their very earliest days, they also have this sense of, of this blackness together with this renewal, knowing that it's only by His grace that they have been changed. Notice that this confession of the, that I am dark but lovely is addressed to the daughters of Jerusalem. This is the first time we encounter them here in the Song of Solomon. Of course, we're just getting started, but uh, we find them all through the Song of Solomon. But who are they? Well, clearly they are associated with the church. They're called the daughters of Jerusalem. And of course, Jerusalem is the city of God, the church of his people. They seem to be those, however, whose faith is perhaps not yet fully formed or who are coming to Christ, perhaps, or perhaps they are, their, their faith is newly formed. It seems that the bride, the true church as a whole, is often teaching and guiding them. And they look to her as a kind of mentor. So they're there, they're, they're those that are being taught and, and discipled to learn the ways of the Lord and what it is to follow him. For example, several times she urges them not to rush love, not to be artificial about it is perhaps what that means, so that you, you presume that there's a fullness and a richness there that's not really the fullness and richness that you want to have. And in chapter 5, verse 9, they ask her, what it, they show their immaturity, they ask her, what's so special about Christ that, that you would follow him and desire him like this? And then when they're told, they say, oh, we want to follow him with you. And they, they go with her. So this is, the, this is just kind of how they appear. Sort of, sort of young believers, perhaps, or those that are just learning the faith. You know, that, just a, a reality in the church even. even. Even when we receive people by, by profession of faith, you know, we don't always know exactly where they are at that time. Sometimes Christ is still being formed in them. And it's not till a later time that they actually come to, to really be regenerate. And other times, they may have long before they actually make a profession and, and unite with the church, have already, um, already trusted in him. And so it, it's, it's that whole group of people in there that are, are, are coming along. 
The, the bride seems to be warning the daughters of Jerusalem here to not stumble because of the darkness that they see in her. The corruption and the affliction even that remains in her, the sorrows. In verse 6, she says, do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. Now, the idea of the, uh, the picture here that she uses is her being out in the sun and getting cooked in the, in the hot sun in the desert and uh, tending, tending to the vineyard and things like that, having, working outside all day. Of course, we think today of tans being a, a nice thing, but there are other cultures where it was something that you would, if you were refined and you were in the king's palace, then you would avoid having your skin dried up and, and darkened would be the idea. So, so she knows that as, these, as she speaks to these daughters of Jerusalem, it's easy for them to look at her and focus on the darkness that's in her. When new people are brought into the church, they may at first think that, you know, oh, wow, these people are all so spiritual and, you know, they're kind of intimidated and overwhelmed. And then they get to know us a bit. <laughs> and then their impression starts to change and they say, oh, wow, they have, they have problems. And I thought they were all totally devoted to Jesus and they always did what he wanted them to do. And, and, they, they began, and it's a struggle to them. And she's saying, don't, 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 look at, don't focus on my darkness. You know, I, I know it's there. They, they also think that they all have no sorrows. That, you know, these people kind of walk above the earth and they don't have... Uh, sorrows like other people have, and then they find that, you know, there are those with, with chronic illness and those with, with plagues and troubles and trials, and that they have sorrow as well. Yes, there's gladness that we've seen that comes from being in the holy place. That's what the song was talking about, but there's also affliction, isn't there, that's part of our walk. Even when we're in the very intimacy and nearness of Christ, we have sorrows and we have difficulties, so these, these young ones, they begin to see the darkness in the bride, and, and it can dishearten them. They can say, oh, they can be like pliable in Pilgrim's Progress. I don't think I want to go along with this. This is, this is not a good thing. I don't like what I see here. It can make them stumble, and it can even make them turn away from Christ permanently if they're not yet truly converted. They can make the darkness they see in the bride an excuse for their unbelief. This is what you hear all the time, isn't it? People find fault, they pick at the church and say, oh, look at that, look at that. And a lot of times it's true things. They say, I'm not going to be a Christian, I don't want anything to do with that. And they magnify, they focus on the darkness. And she's saying, don't, don't do that, you, you young uh, disciples here, don't, don't do that. She explains to them where the darkness that's seen in her has come from. First, the sorrows that they see in her come from growing up with those who hate her and who I believe were explained here to be part of the visible church because such ones permeate the visible church. She says that it comes from those she calls her mother's sons. The church, you see, is the mother of all of those who are in the visible church, and the mother's sons would be those who are outwardly in the church but not truly part of the church. I mean, they're part of it in in the visible church, but they're not truly regenerate. They're professing believers, but they're actually resentful of those who love Christ or who have come to Christ. Make no mistake, there are many like this in the church in all ages. There is no time in the Old Testament when they did not persecute the prophets and those who followed the prophets. Think about that. 
many times it was the leaders who were the persecutors of the prophets more than anyone else, the ones who were in charge of things. They were clearly there when Jesus came, were they not? What did the leaders of the very church do when their Messiah came? They hated him. And they looked for trouble in him, and he was afflicted, and he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And they ended up crucifying him. Now, of course, that was all in God's providence as a way to save us. But this is what they were. And then what did they do with his followers? They put them out of the synagogue. And it has gone on and on and on through the ages. Those who are often in the, the visible organization of the church and the hierarchy are the ones who are bitter and who who are opposed to those who truly do know Jesus Christ. Peter tells us to expect this in this present time, in the whole time from when Christ came until the end of the age. 2 Peter 3, 1 and 2, he says that it will be the same in the New Testament as it was in the Old. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. So you see, there's destruction that they bring. They, They hamper even those who are there to follow Christ. Not ultimately. Ultimately, God uses it all for good. You see how they treat her. They put her to work in their vineyard. You see, they were angry with her and they, were, and they opposed her as a true bride of Christ. She says, my mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards. Rather than nurturing her in the vineyard of the Lord, they had her serving another vineyard where she did not grow the way she would have. This is like someone growing up in a apostate church, doesn't preach the gospel, doesn't really bring forth the word of God and disciple people. And there's great, there's great difficulty in that. But and it makes her, it, it contributed to her darkness. But she doesn't use this as a excuse to say, I'm not responsible. Rather, second, she says that she didn't grow into greater purity because of her own neglect. She says, my own vineyard I have not kept. Now, every one of you can testify to that truth. You have not done all that you should to grow in grace. You have missed many opportunities. You have not diligently pursued the means of grace. You have not prayed as you should. You have not sought the Lord as you should. You you have not taken opportunities of service that he has brought to your path. And you know that, that you've come short in so many different ways. How different you would be if you had fully followed Christ in in pursuit of his grace and mercy, we have been sleepy. We have been sluggish with the means of grace. We've not meditated on the word of God day and night, and we've not been diligent to apply it. We have been slow to make sacrifices for our master, and we've been filled with, with empty pursuit. How many wasted years there have been our mixed nature is a painful subject when we see the beauty of, and love of Christ, our husband. We could wish that we were more pure. We could wish that we were more conformed to him. Like Paul, we cry out when we see the darkness and we say, Romans seven twenty four that we read earlier, O wretched man that I am, 
Who will deliver me from this body of death? And then like Paul, we turn to our husband and we say, Romans 7, 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the one who delivers me. See how the bride, feeling her mixed nature, turns to Christ, her husband, for acceptance and grace. That's the thing to do. She asked him that she might be with his flock. You see that? She knows how tenderly he nourishes and cares for them. As she does that, look at how she addresses him. Look at that first. Let's notice first how she addresses him. She says, Oh, you whom I love. She loves him because of the kisses that he's kissed her with the kisses of his mouth. He's shown his love to her. And she has been, even though she's charred with darkness, she still has experienced his love. She loves him because his love is better than wine. Because the fragrance of his good ointments is poured forth. She loves him because despite the darkness in her, he has brought her into his chambers. She has rejoiced in his love for her, even though there is sin in her. Oh, you whom I love, she says. He has no rival as far as she is concerned. She actually says, oh, you whom my soul loves. I'm not sure why the, the, the New King James left out the word my soul. It's in the original. Oh, you whom my soul loves, showing that it is all that she is, all that she is loves him. She expresses this so freely and so naturally here. She wants him to shepherd her. She wants to be with the flock because she knows that she needs his nurture and his comfort. She needs growth. She needs him to lead her to the pasture. So she says, tell me where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon. She knows that under his care and protection as her shepherd, she will be richly fed with food that will cause her to grow in grace and assurance. She knows that she will be sheltered, able to rest in him despite her sorrows and the troubles that she has, the persecutions, the oppositions, the trials. She will be able to know that all of these things are given to her by him to shape her so that in them she will have peace and rest and quietness. People of God, you know how he transforms you by his shepherding, how his word teaches you of him. You've experienced that, how it convicts you of your sin, how it corrects you and shows you how you need to change things that you need to do that you're not doing, how it nourishes you up in his likeness, how it brings assurance to you and shows you who he is in his character. You know what it is to partake of his ordinances and to be conformed and comforted as he cares for you and he provides for you. This is the reason that when David was cut off from the temple, he spoke with yearning for the courts of the Lord. He desired the courts of the Lord. Saul, the king, was in pursuit of him, and David was cut off from the sacrifices and the feasts. So many believers are facing that now across our country. It's a time for fasting and lamentation like David had, that God would restore us to his courts. In the song, the bride wants to be fully received among the faithful. She does not want to be an outsider. She wants to be a partaker with her good shepherd. The NKJV says in the last half of verse 7, 
For why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? Now, the reason I said the NKJV says that is because (laughs) you go to the commentators and you can find about a thousand different interpretations for this verse. This is a very, very difficult one to interpret. But the the language is difficult, but the idea seems to be that she does not want to be on the outskirts of things. She does not want to be an outsider. The idea of one being veiled would mean that she would appear to be one who, one of the prostitutes who hung out around the shepherds in those days, not belonging to any one of those shepherds, but the prostitutes would go about where the shepherds were out with their sheep, the different ones, and then they would, of course, you know, solicit uh, them, th- th- this kind of a thing going on. She doesn't want to be in, in that kind of a, a situation. Um, this could also be translated. Some say that the word veil is a word that means to wander about. So one who wanders around by the flocks of your companions. She doesn't want to be that. Or one who veils herself the way the prostitutes did to keep their identity hidden. She doesn't want to be that kind of a, a person. The flocks of his companions are those who have rival flocks, I think, here. Now, that's not a definite thing. We're doing an allegory, so it's difficult. But, uh, for Christ is, but Christ is the only shepherd, and there is one flock. And so when we have these ones called companions that have their own flocks, they're called companions not as friends, but as those who are involved in the same occupation. So they have rival churches, we might say, rival flocks. She does not want to be a loose woman who goes from one flock to another, one shepherd to another, I should say, nor does she want to be perceived as such. She wants to be able to find and discern where he is feeding his people rather than one who's aimlessly going from one to another. She wants to be with him and with no one else, with them, his people, with the one that she loves. She has had enough of false shepherds. She wants him and him alone now. Tell me, she says, where you feed your flock. That's where I want to be. That is her request. Now, see how warmly he receives her. Despite the darkness that can still be seen in her, that she's still aware of, he warmly receives her. Remember, this is the whole church. She, the bride, this represents the whole church. First, see how he addresses her. And, and if you're part of the, the true church, this, this address is for you. What does he say? Oh, fairest of women. Oh, fairest among women. She is the fairest one of all. She is the most beautiful. This is his estimation of her. Despite the darkness that she sees in herself, his flock is the beautiful flock that he delights in and that he desires and that he sees beauty in. He can say this of us because his spirit has transformed us to love him. No one else loves him except those that he has transformed. No, nowhere else does he have the pleasure of love that is due to him coming to him. And the same spirit that has given us that love has also stamped us with his likeness. It is at work in us to renew us and to make us perfect. Jesus sees not only what we are, but what we shall be. The beginnings to him give great excitement because he knows what the end will be. 
Further, he sees us as fully cleansed by his own work, his atonement and his righteousness that is credited to us when we believe. We are beautiful in him, and he sees us in this way. He sees us as those who have been cleansed and washed from all of our defilement. Remember when God talks in Ezekiel about meeting the bride, meeting his his people, Israel, and he says how he found them in their blood. They were defiled and they were unclean. He says, and I washed you and I cleansed you and I clothed you and I brought you into my house, clothed you with righteousness. I took you in. This is the beauty then that he delights in her. How thoughtful it is of him too in his tenderness to address her like this to reassure her of delight that he has. not She needed this because she was, she was insecure. She sees the blackness and she says, how can, he, how can he receive me? James Hamilton says of this verse, brothers and sisters, do you have concerns about how you will appear before the judgment seat? Do you feel guilt or insecurity? Let the Lord Jesus wash you with the water of his word. Paul says that what Jesus did has removed spot stain, wrinkle, and blemish from his bride. And he says that Jesus laid down his life to present the church to himself in glory. Ephesians 5, 26 and 27. If you believe in Jesus, you are clean. You are forgiven. Already he counts her as the fairest among women because he redeemed when he laid down his life on the cross, he redeemed the whole church, past, present, and future. Yes, some of them have not even been born yet. But the whole bride he sees is gloriously redeemed and purified. And of course, we personally become justified when we believe, when, we, when we're brought to him. But already we're all together beautiful in his sight. So in response to her request, he tenderly tells her, he says, find, you find me by following my flock. Do you want to know where I am? That's where I am. So he tells her that if she does not know where to find him, that she should, verse 8, follow the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tent. He is always busy with his people, busy in his church, tending them and caring for them. (laughs) A a joke comes to mind of the the, uh, the the spiritual fellow that I think he was some kind of a priest or something or another that went up in the tower so that he could be near to God and he stayed up in this tower and everybody said why is he up in the oh he's he's up there to be near to God and then uh, later when he he died and he said uh, I, I don't remember exactly how it came about but he said where were you Lord I was there looking for you in the tower and the Lord said oh I was down here with my people he was down on earth he's there feeding his flock. That's where the Lord is. We're to follow along with those who follow him. The great train of the church, you see. What is that train? It's the apostles and prophets. The ones who are true, the ones who are persecuted, the ones who are rejected that we talked about before. They brought forth the truth concerning Christ. We follow in their footsteps. You see, we take the word of God that they have taught and that they've given us and that God has recorded for us in Scripture. And we follow in those those pathways, the good ways that are laid out with us. And we follow the people of God today who are following that way and those who through history have followed him. The great train of the church that is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Never do we go on in just any train. We have to see that it is founded on the teachings of Scripture. 
Because we, we saw there are many that go off, those, those who rejected Jesus, those who are the leaders. They crucified their own Messiah. You don't want to follow just blindly, but you follow those who follow him, those who are with him, those who are grounded in the scriptures. She may have even been kicked out by her angry brothers, just as the false leaders kicked out the bride when Jesus came. The true bride had to go outside the camp to follow him, but she found him outside the camp. That's where she went with him. It is a great day of lamentation when, as in our day, we are to various degrees blocked from God's ordinances. We need to pray earnestly that our Lord will visit us with mercy and restore his appointed assemblies. We need to afflict our souls and we need to fast before him. We need to pray for wisdom about how to respond in these times, that we would be neither belligerent belligerent and Sinful, sinfully defiant, nor indifferent and paralyzed by fear. Our desire is to be godly and to follow in the footsteps of the faithful. But in the song, you see that he has welcomed her to his flock. But what about the darkness that is still in her? Yes, he has changed her and she is lovely. But how can she be fit to come to him because of the corruption that still remains in her. See how he assures her of his esteem for her. He says in verse 9, I have compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. With all our faults, still, that is what he says of us, if indeed we are in him. Notice how naturally he refers to her as my love. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, it just kind of flows into the sentence. He says, he says, I have compared you, my love. He just, just, just flows along, rolls off his tongue. That's how he addresses her. She's truly his, my love. And she is truly loved, my love. This is, what, this is how he regards her. But now look at the comparison that's given here. Egypt was known to have the best horses in all the world. And here is not just an Egyptian horse, but one of Pharaoh's Egyptian horses, the best of the best. And not only that, but a filly among his chariots. Now, the chariots were always drawn in Egypt by stallions. So here is a mare among them. What is more lovely than a fine mare? Think about the beauty of a horse, strong and and graceful and very, very attractive. You see a a horse running, and this is a beauty that that is in them, greatly to be desired by all the stallions there among Pharaoh's chariots. There she is. But do you feel that way? Do you feel that way? Does, do you see the church that way? A beautiful, a beautiful filly among, among all the chariots of Pharaohs, standing out above all. Of, Jesus says, this is how I regard you as my people. You are greatly to be, you're, you're my desire. You're the desire of my heart. See how he goes on to describe also her jewels. I'm sure that you've seen pictures of horses in the ancient world when they're bedecked with all sorts of jewels on their bridle on their, uh, and on the, the, the front of their neck that they have these, these lovely, rich jewels, uh, gold and silver and all these things that are, that are, are, are adorning them. And uh, so, so here you have verse 10. Jesus says to his church, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments. Your neck was chains of gold. Christian, you are bedecked 
with graces, many graces, not just some, uh, many graces, graces that are more precious than gold and silver. There is the righteousness of Christ. We've already mentioned this imputed to you. You are clothed with his perfect righteousness. You have the garments. You've been washed and cleansed so that all the dirt is is washed away and you're covered by him. Then there is the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 3.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Consider how lovely that is. It's something you don't have in your... It's something that he gives to his church. He gives us these jewels. Think of them. Think of them. Just pause. Love. Think what it is to be able to love. Joy. Have joy in the Lord, even in times of hardship and sorrow. Peace. To have a a restedness, a settledness. Long-suffering. We're able to bear along with, with trouble and affliction. Kindness. Be someone that really does care about others. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. Isn't that a lovely thing? Self-control. Ephesians 5.9 has a different way of describing these jewels, this fruit. It says, for the fruit of the Spirit is all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Things that you didn't have before. Yes, the church's darkness is quite obvious. Anyone can see it. It's easy for the world to look at us and find fault. It's easy for us to look at each other and find fault. It's easy for us to look at ourselves and find fault. But Christ sees the lovely jewels that he has given us. He sees what they will become And he delights in us. How comforting to know of his pleasure in the fruits that we bear. Remember in John 15 where he said that that he delights in the fruit that we bear. And that without him we we can't do anything when it comes to bearing fruit. Our Lord does not end though with this is the comfort. That might be enough here. For his self-deprecating bride. That you're a filly, you're among the chariots of Pharaoh. You're beautiful, he says. But he says more. He assures us that he will continue to make precious ornaments for us. In verse 11, he says, We will make you ornaments of gold with studs of silver. Now, I've told you to not necessarily pay attention all the time when, if you have the New King James where it has who's speaking, because that's just added in by the translators and interpreters, and it's not really a translation of anything. It's just based on various tenses and things like that that are used. There's some basis to it, but it's not necessarily so. And many people think here, we will make you ornaments of gold, studs, silver, that it's not the daughters of Jerusalem, because you see it, it says that they, this is sometimes supposed because it switches from him saying that he will do this to saying we will make you these. But first of all, it's not feminine in form, the, the, the we here. It's, it's actually common, so you can't tell if it's masculine or feminine. And uh, besides that, it is Christ who has been speaking. And we have no reason to think that he switches, especially when it doesn't make sense. Just as we saw with the bride last week, it's the most natural thing in the world 
for her to speak of herself in the singular and then shift to the plural because she is one bride made up of many members. So our God is one God in three persons. And just as we would talk, if I'm talking about the church, then I might be saying something like, um, you know, that, that I love the Lord, we serve Him because He has redeemed us. It's natural to shift from speaking in the first person like that, or the, I'm, I'm sorry, the singular to the, to the plural, to, say, to switch from I to we. And not only that, but who is it that makes our jewels? That's the main thing here. Is it not the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Does God not refer to Himself as we when he created us and said in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image according to our likeness? It was the work of the Trinity to do that. Is it not much more the work of the Trinity to create us in his image now, in, I mean, to recreate us in his image, to renew us in his image when we had fallen away and become defiled and unclean? That's a greater work than our initial creation. It, it belongs to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit because we have fallen into sin. How grand this is. We, the church, see and confess that we are a mixture of darkness and loveliness. Christ, having taken us to himself, assures us of his love and esteem of us and promises that he will continue his work in us. It's not up to us, brothers and sisters, to make the fruit grow. It is his gracious work in us. What certainty there is that his work will be accomplished in us. The beauty that He desires, He is forming in us. This shows us that He has not finished His work in us yet. He has more to do. That is the good news because we would not want it to be all. Would you like to be stuck with whatever amount of sanctification you have now? Would you like to be stuck with this body of death, with the darkness that is in you now? You wouldn't want this. Let let us then seek to bear much fruit. Let us abide in His Word. Let us continue in his ordinances. Let us look to him in prayer. He loves us and he has promised to us, we will make you ornaments of gold with studs of silver. May the Lord add his blessing to what we have heard. Please stand and let's ask him to do so. Our Father in heaven, our gracious Lord Jesus Christ and Holy Spirit of God who works in our hearts. How we praise you, O Lord, for the wondrous work that you have done in your church. We praise you, O Lord, that we can see that we who are once wholly defiled by sin, who are unclean and undone and who had no interest in the things of God, no interest in the true God, only in idols, that, O Lord, by your mercy and grace that we have been redeemed We have been brought near to you, O Lord. You have saved us. You have reconciled us to yourself. You have given us a covering for our sin to wash us and cleanse us from our defilement and then clothe us with your own righteousness. We thank you, O Lord, that in order to do that, that you came down to this earth in your great love to us and that you bore our iniquities on the cross, that you became flesh first and then you lived among us a righteous and perfect life And then you went to the cross for us. And oh Lord, we praise you for the great work that you have done for your bride. You have cleansed her, oh Lord. You have washed her and now you are working in her to make her all that you have promised her to be. We thank you, oh Lord, that that we will not always bear about this body of death. 
that the day is coming when we will be complete and perfect in Christ, when we will be presented to him without spot or blemish or any such thing. Father, we cannot imagine what it will be like in that great day. We thank you that his love for us is already upon us, that he delights in us and what we already are by his grace and what we shall be by his grace. We pray, O Lord, that we would know ourselves as he knows us, that we would rest in the work that he has done for us in the great things that he has accomplished for us as our Lord and Savior. For Lord, we come to you in his glorious name. Amen. Give now the blessing of the Lord. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Amen.